You're listening to Sirens, a true crime podcast brought to you by the Sirens Network. This podcast contains explicit content, so listener discretion is advised. The opinions expressed on this podcast are solely the views of the hosts and do not reflect the views of affiliates, associates, or sponsors of this podcast. This is Sirens, a true crime podcast. I'm so excited about this. Really am. Oh my gosh. Okay, so let's get started. Today, we are going like literally right next door to me. This this is a case from Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, and it literally happened maybe a mile, maybe two miles away from where I live currently, which is a little creepy. Oh my God, I didn't know it was that close to you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. Yuck. So it's just a hop, skip, and a jump away. And this was really big news when when we first moved up here. This happened in 2015. We moved up here 2016, almost a year later after all of this happened. And it was just like all over the news. It was everywhere up here. So today we're going to talk about the Bevered murders. This is the case of the two killer brothers who committed familicide. That's our word of the day. Okay, so I do have a question. We talked about, it looks like matricide, but if you think about matriarchy, patriarchy, was it supposed to be matricide, not matricide? You know, honestly, I've heard people, a lot of different people say it either way. Okay, okay, okay. So anyways, that just made me think back because someone's probably listening to it going, it's major side. And I really think that it probably depends on like where you're from in the United States or even in the world yeah, on yeah. how you say it. True. It does kind of sound like when you say matricide, it's like... Like you killed someone on a mattress. So, okay, we're going to talk to you about the Bever murders. The killer in this situation would be 18-year-old Robert Bever and his 16-year-old brother, Michael, who, like we said, committed familicide. And their family was actually quite large. It was a family of nine. This family was kind of really shut off to the world. All of their children were homeschooled. They were kind of kept away from the internet and even TV and stuff like that from what I've heard. They weren't allowed to watch certain things or partake in certain things. They didn't really have very many outside friends. The two oldest brothers, Robert and Michael, they were each other's best friends. And there have been all sorts of interviews with neighbors. I mean, like I said, this was everywhere. And this even made like national headlines. Real quick, I just want to say the CAD transcript. A CAD transcript is basically a transcript from the 911 operator. It's a transcript of everything that she is doing during that call. We are not going to explain that on this podcast. However, if you join our group, which you can find a link to on our Facebook page, that's where we release some exclusive content and stuff like that. So if you aren't up on your, you know, 911 jargon or whatever. But anyway, so the neighbors... 
have all been interviewed and they said that, you know, the mother homeschooled their children. The parents kept a close eye on them. They didn't allow them from mingling with even, even neighbors or neighbor kids. They also said that they didn't see the Bevers very often. They kind of kept to themselves. They seemed really closed off. They didn't really mingle at all. Like you would think, you know, small town. I mean, I guess Broken Arrow is not really a small town, but it has kind of that feel to it. Oh, yeah. There was even a neighbor. His name was Beale Burnson. He gave a statement where he said that they, I guess they lived right next door to the Bevers. And he said they never bothered each other. And that's how he liked it. At a kid? But, I mean, the family's lifestyle, they were reported to be so inconspicuous to some of the neighbors that the neighbors didn't even find out their full names of the family for the first time until after all this happened. They didn't even know their names. See, I find that I find that completely fucking normal. I don't know my neighbors' names. Not not one of them. Exactly. It's like, why, why does everybody act like this is such a strange phenomenon? Like, mind your business. Anyway, sorry. It's just, I, I don't find that that strange. What I would find strange is they didn't know how many kids there were until this happened. Well, yeah. Like the yeah. comings and goings kind of thing. That's this. I mean, you kind of know that, but I don't know. Yeah. They gave in and they got the internet. And this is where the two oldest boys would come across their their new passion. The dad was in IT, right? Yeah, I yeah. believe that he was in some sort of computer business. He was doing techie stuff. Mom was a stay-at-home mom, and she's the one that would teach the kids. So the internet allowed these kids to find things on the internet that they're not supposed to have access to, which we will talk more about later. However, Michael was a recent homeschool graduate at 16 years old. And and Robert, I don't know when he graduated, but I know that at, at the time that all this went down, he had already been homeschool graduate or whatever. You Is that what you even call that? I mean, there's still a graduate because the, the state has statutes. Oh, well, yeah, that's true too. But I mean, they, they seemed like rather normal kids to the outside world but then again we just told you that no one knew shit about him but i mean at, at first glance even robert the oldest he was 18 he had a youtube channel and he did seemingly normal 18 year old things he posted on his channel about stuff like he would talk about Minecraft or computers or, you know, stuff like that. Didn't you say you watched the videos? I didn't watch them. Yeah. Well, what they have is like a compilation of snippets. Okay. And it was just random stuff he was talking about. Like you said, like video games and he just seemed like a normal nerdy kid. Yeah. I, I don't know if they're still up they have to have been if you just watched recently but i mean you guys out there if you want to take a look at those his username is cult empire so get this so in order for all of these things to fall into place like robert wants them to later when we start getting into more details he has to have a job so that he can save up money so that he can buy ammunition and all of the this armor and all and the knives all this stuff that he wants later right Ugh. 
So he gets a job at a place called Micah Tech in the summer of 2014. And this was a religious call center. I kid you not. For what? What it is, is basically people call in and Robert Bever would pray with them. Okay. You would call in when you're having like a horrible day. You need a prayer warrior or whatever. Okay. And you, you would call into this call center and say, I need someone to pray with me. And they would direct you to Robert Bever. Okay. This is where he made enough money to buy all of this riot gear, body armor, guns, ammo, all of this stuff off of these people's prayers. Ironic. Oh, you know what? I just looked it up and you're absolutely right. It is a televangelist sort of thing. Like you see the thing on TV and it gives you the number and you call in and then you can order like books and supplies and stuff like that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're right. hundred <laughs> percent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. However, I am not a religious person. For you to be sitting there and talking to religious people all day long and praying with them or ordering their Bibles or whatever you're doing and you're literally sitting there the entire time plotting your family's murder and then plotting to go on this freaking massacre rampage, like, that's pretty evil, if you ask me. So no one knew about any of the stuff that these brothers were planning on doing, except for the brothers. Okay, so he's working at this summer job, and he's making money to save up for riot gear, body armor, all this shit. And he starts purchasing a lot of knives and a lot of gear and stuff like that. And they're getting really into this movie called Rampage, which I have never seen. No, me neither. I I wouldn't even know how to go about telling you about this movie, but apparently it was one of the brothers' absolute favorite movies. And apparently it's about a dude who literally goes on a rampage (laughs) i know that one of who whoever this is uh, this movie is about i know that his mantra was there are too many people in the world that do not contribute to society and not only that but the world is overpopulated so he was going to take it upon himself to eliminate said people and, and this also became the brother's mantra as well. Like, they just fucking fell in love with this movie. They romanticized it and admired this dude in this movie. Robert claimed that he and his brother planned the act for some time and intended to, like, just go on shooting a shooting spree once they were... The 2009 one says, A man with a thirst for revenge builds a full body armor from Kevlar and goes on a killing spree. That one's it. Well, and, and this is what's what kind of spurred their obsession okay and from there they would start googling mass shooters and they really for some reason admired the columbine shooters they were really into school shootings and like when they got the interwebs they started learning to be a murderer 
to you out there listening, some of these names have been changed that we will be talking about for privacy reasons. If you really want to know, obviously there is an abundance of media on the internet. A lot of things were made public after the trial ended. You can find it if you really want to find it, but we're going to leave the names out of it for now for those who survived this. Anyway, so they started looking at all of these things online and it turned into this sort of savage passion and then they started using Robert's money to start purchasing things like knives body armor and we're talking like bulletproof vests and uh, we're talking like riot gear is what we're talking Mm -hmm. and the only one that knew what was going on was the 13 year old girl Jade and she eventually told in her testimony later that she told her parents about that that she was like really concerned about Robert and Michael because they were buying all of these weird things like hey they should not be have like 47 knives in their room what's going on with this and the parents uh, seemingly did not care it was kind of one of those things where they like brushed it off and they literally said, and, and this is from her testimony, they said, oh, boys will be boys. Oh, God. Right? Just fuels the fire for toxic masculinity. It just, no, here's the deal. Boys won't be boys. It will eventually be men. That's what you need. To, ooh, never mind. Exactly. Never mind. I just. It started with knives and body armor and they started becoming obsessed with guns and trying to figure out how they could get guns and ammunition. In Jade's testimony when she went to court and she testified against Michael, she claimed, and and there's no one really to rebuke her because she was the, pretty much the sole survivor, other than the two-year-old baby, and, like, they're not going to put a two-year-old on the stand. Yeah. In her testimony, she claimed that the mother and the father were kind of abusive, It was basically the father was abusive, he was overbearing, he was controlling, he was verbally abusive. Then when it comes to the mom, she kind of said that she was more passive in, like, basically whatever dad says goes. So Jade didn't necessarily testify that he beat them, but the boys did. He would literally kick them. And of course... The dad's not going to do this in front... I'm sorry, abusers don't do these things in front of a crowd. Like, right. you know, beat the two sons, yeah. leave the other kids out of it, even the daughters. Who who knows how that went? You know what I mean? Right, right. I know that in the testimony, she had stated that they were abusive. Because I know in the initial statement, Michael did say something about, about dad being abusive. Mm-hmm. But again, he never said physical. Yeah. I believe that. Yeah. Like, that checks out for me. Right. Same. The the more people that will listen to this and get they can get help in a relationship or they can maybe guide their children in a different way or see alarming, you know, uh things around them like people they work with even things like that. If we can bring your awareness and your attention to the patterns and the things that happen and all the red flags, maybe we can save in life. For sure. You know, it, it Anything that we can do to post a red flag in your brain, we're going to learn from all these terrible things that happen. We're going to learn together. So, okay, later, Robert actually confessed that 
he and his brother actually planned to dismember the bodies when they were done and place them in storage bins and hide them in the attic of their home. They wanted to steal the family's car and take all of their gear that they had acquired and just start fucking randomly killing people. They were going to literally drive across the country and kill as many people as they could. That was their plan. When when Robert figured out that he could, in Oklahoma, legally just go down and buy a gun from a pawn shop, he did it. He took his money down. He bought a bunch of guns. He stored them there at the pawn shop that he had purchased them from. And then he went online and bought 3,000 rounds of ammunition. They left the guns there. The plan was when they killed their family. Quietly. Yeah. 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 They were going to take the car and then they were going to retrieve the guns from the pawn shop. And then they were going to go on this killing spree. Okay, right, right. And they wanted to stop just at random places. Michael mentioned stopping just at random gas stations and killing at least five people at each gas station. The ammunition. Here's the thing about the ammunition. They purchased the ammunition online. Where do you think that ammunition is going to be sent to? Mom and dad's house. Mom and dad's house. You have no other place for it to be sent to. You damn sure can't send it to your job. (laughs) I mean, you only have one place to send it to. So their plan was, okay, we'll go ahead and send it to the house. And then we'll track the shipping. And the day before it's supposed to arrive, because obviously we don't want mom and dad to end up finding 3,000 rounds of ammunition, then we'll just start the killing there. We'll just kill the entire family then. The brothers said that they wanted to be known well enough to have their own Wikipedia page. Well, guess what? You did it. Here is where I think we're going to get into our timeline of events. How about that? All right. We have pulled together this timeline from basically the police officers, the detectives perspective of what they saw when they got there. And then also we took some stuff from the statements from Michael and Robert and interviews and this, that, and the other, and kind of compiled them. So you get kind of both sides of the story here. So we're going to start around 11 p.m. July 22nd, 2015. April, who is the mother, and Jade, the 13-year-old sister, are sitting on the couch watching TV. This is a two-story house. It's a very large house. So April and Jade are sitting in the living room on the couch watching TV. The rest of the family are in their rooms asleep, including dad, which his name is David, by the way. Michael is tasked with going downstairs, tasked by his brother, Robert, who was apparently the mastermind of this entire thing. He's basically given Michael these instructions, these orders that he's supposed to follow. Michael's job is to go downstairs, get Jade, bring her back upstairs to the brother's room that they shared together. Michael does that he goes downstairs. He says, hey, Jade, I've got to show you something on this computer come up here and let me show it to you. So he begins taking her back upstairs to the brother's room. Michael leads her over to the computer and begins showing her something on the computer. And the point of this was that Michael was supposed to distract Jade from an attack by Robert. 
which sort of worked because initially the plan was that they had gotten this crossbow. They wanted everything to be really quiet. So the plan was when this happened, they would shoot her with a crossbow and then basically move room to room using this crossbow. Well, apparently earlier in the night, one of them, I believe it was Michael who said that he tried to fire it to like test it out and it broke. But so then, you know, ammunition is coming tomorrow. There's nothing we can do. We're going to have to fly by the seat of our pants. And so they just decided to get their knives that they had stored. And Michael had talked about he and Robert both had matching knives. They were 12 inch knives. Oh God. Yeah. That's so unnecessary. Yeah, and and he even went so far as to say uh, his was this and Robert's was had a red handle. And, like, he was, like, so excited about what their knives looked like. There's, like, a camo one and an orange one or some shit. The quiet thing was basically out, they thought. And then they thought, well, let's let's use the knives because, you know, at least knives are quieter than guns. We don't have to wait tomorrow. Yeah. Now the plan changes to... While Jade is looking at the laptop, Robert is going to come up from behind and slit her throat. He thought that that would kill her instantly. And he actually did that. He came up behind her and he slit her throat. She did not actually die. She began kicking and screaming and freaking out, kicking at both of the brothers. And Robert began stabbing her like over and over and over again. As she's trying to get out the door, mom downstairs hears a commotion upstairs. And so here comes mom, April, up the stairs. So mom shows up in the doorway of the brother's room upstairs. And Jade is still trying to get out of the room. And Robert turns around, sees mom in the doorway, and begins to attack her. Michael also takes a stab at April. So April is able to get her and Jade downstairs. Jade is able to get outside of the door, out of the front door, but April is not. And by the end of it, by the time that Michael and Robert were both done with her, she suffers 48 stab wounds to her back, her chest, her neck, her upper arms. She was also at some point hit over the head as the autopsy showed that she had blunt force trauma to her head. So this did not go at all how they thought that it was going to go. She lived through 48 stab wounds. Jade escapes out the front door and she collapses in the front yard. They assume that she's dead. Daniel, who is 12 years old at the time, a younger brother, hears this commotion downstairs. He comes out of his room and he goes downstairs to figure out like what the fuck is going on down here like what is all this fucking screaming what is happening he sees Robert standing there with a knife and Robert immediately tries to attack him and starts slashing at him he actually hits Daniel's arm but Daniel is quick enough to run back to his bedroom and shut the door and lock it the plan now is Robert sends Michael up to Daniel's room to try to coax him out. It's disgusting. Yeah, it really is. (sighs) The plan is Michael is supposed to coax 
Daniel out of the room by telling him that Robert is also trying to kill him. When Michael did his confession, their dad's office and the bathroom, there was a door that joined those. So there was one kid in the office. He came out of his bedroom, heard the commotion and ran into a room and locked the door. Okay. You're probably right. It probably was the office because the office would have, was downstairs. Okay. Daniel, when he ran into this room and he closed the door. So what he did was it said he found a old cell phone in a drawer. One of his dad's old cell phones in a drawer. And that's what he actually called 911 from. No shit. Yeah. Oh. Like it did not have service. Like the phone itself was shut off. And for you guys out there who don't know that even if a phone is shut off and you have not paid anything on it to keep it active or whatever, you can always dial 911. Just FYI. Daniel is calling 911 as Michael is banging on the door telling him, Robert's going to kill me. Robert's going to kill me. You have to let me in. You have to open the door. Here's a little thing. We actually have the 911 call that we are going to play for you. So this is a real 911 call. It's not a dramatization. It's not made up. This is the real thing. And we're going to let you listen to it. So disclaimer warning, if you think it's going to be too much for you, just scooch ahead about a minute. Okay, 911. Broken Air 911. Hello? Hi, where are you at? Seven, okay. Are you the only one there? No. My dad is attacking my family. Your dad is attacking your family? No, my dad will. Um, yeah, I need to Oh, thank you. Okay, who's attacking your family? Do they have Are you there? Hi, what's going on there? Hello? It's so hard to hear a little kid terrified, shaking, whispering help. And then for us to be on the after side, knowing that he did not make it, but he probably saved the lives of two of his siblings. That's heavy. And not just that, but these kids planned on mass murdering people after this happened. If if Daniel would not have called 911, there's a real chance that it, it they could have had enough time to murder who knows how many more people before they were caught. That kid's a fucking hero. Yep. That thing just, that fucking kills me, though, when he says, Michael, please no. Makes me really angry. Yeah. Especially the fact that what you're hearing on the, the recording is Daniel actually opening up the door to Michael and actually letting him in. It was 11.30 p.m. on July 22nd, 2015, when this call came in through dispatch. It was made by Daniel and 
we're almost fairly certain that you actually hear Daniel's murder in this 911 call. And that is Michael banging on the door, telling him to let him in. Daniel opens up the door thinking, okay, he's trying to kill you too. Come in here with me. I'm on 911. I'm on the, the phone with 911 right now. And then Michael completely flips on him and Michael is actually the one who kills him. What could they possibly yeah. have done to you at this point in life where you think that this is okay? The voice that you hear there at the end is actually Robert because while Michael is dealing with Daniel, Robert takes the phone from him and like I guess he's making sure that someone is actually on the line. Daniel has called 911 and they know that they have to start moving very quickly now. Dispatch tries to call the number back. Obviously, it's it's a disconnected number. I don't remember at least in the old days you could you could get back through it. I don't know if yeah. that is still the case with the E911 and all that. I never worked with E911, so I think they used like the water bill cuz they called one and it was April's old number and it wasn't active so then they tried to call David. That would make more sense for the E911 stuff. Yeah. But we do know that they they did try to call. They called several times actually and there there was no answer. So they went ahead and dispatched officers to the scene, obviously, like something is going on here. Let's go ahead and dispatch it out. So the brothers, when when they're done with Daniel, he has nine stab wounds to the back, the shoulder and the chest and off they go down the hallway. Down the hallway is a bathroom where Christopher, who is seven, and Victoria, who is five, have locked themselves in the bathroom. Ugh. Yeah. Once again, Michael pulls out his shady tricks and bangs on the door and tells the two kids that Robert has absolutely lost it, that he's attacking everybody, and that he's trying to kill him as well, and that they need to let him in, or he's gonna die. Well, we're talking about now a seven-year-old and a five-year-old who are absolutely terrified. And of course, they're going to let him in. So they open the door. He's practically an adult to them. Well, and, and at this point, Robert is basically standing right behind Michael. And when the door opens up, they just both kind of push their way in. And they start attacking both of the kids. There's, there's really no telling at this point who stabs or kills who because it was it was just an it was a tornado of things happening in that bathroom christopher is killed by six stab wounds to the back chest shoulder and lower leg victoria is killed by 18 stab wounds to both sides of her neck chest back and arms i can't this is a baby so somehow Dad David has slept through all of this. So their their bedroom was upstairs as well. And he's finally roused awake. He goes downstairs and is like trying to figure out like what is going on and walks into the kitchen. Well, by this time, Robert has met him in the kitchen. Dad has seen all of this blood and everything everywhere. He, I, I'm not sure at this point if he's come across any of the bodies of his family, but he knows that Robert has done something. In Robert's statement, he says that his dad 
muttered something to him like, I'm going to get you or something like that and tries to like take off after him. And Robert just comes straight up with a strike to his gut and starts stabbing him. And dad basically didn't stand a chance. So once dad is down from 28 stab wounds, by the way, to the torso, face, neck, arms, hands... They realize that 13-year-old Jade, who was left outside, is still alive, and she's trying to get away. And Michael said in one of his statements in one of those videos that before all of this happened, Robert had gone downstairs and turned off the security system. But then later, when like investigators were doing stuff, they said that the security system wasn't active, as in like it wasn't they didn't like pay the bill on it like it so robert rush rushes outside and he's like i'm just gonna kill her right here on the lawn because i have to shut her up i we still have to get upstairs and kill the baby so jade is outside laying on the lawn on her stomach robert comes up and basically gets on top of her and is is trying to strangle her from behind and asphyxiate her he's trying to kill her he thinks that he has succeeded so he goes back in the house again he's like we have to get all of our stuff together and so he tells michael go out and bring her inside so nobody sees her while i'm you know preparing to go upstairs and and kill the two-year-old michael does he goes outside he pulls jade basically inside the door and shuts it he doesn't really pull her any further than that so she's basically just laying inside of the door inside of the front door it has only been four minutes since daniel has called 911. at 11:34 p.m detective brett burton heads to the location and and sees that two patrol officers have arrived on scene he's walking up this sidewalk out in the front of the house that leads to the front step and there is blood everywhere like absolutely everywhere all over the front step all over the sidewalk all over the front lawn He's thinking, what the hell has happened here? There's only three of us. We do not have enough manpower. Whatever is happening in there is going to require way more than just us. So he gets to the front door. They start knocking on the door to try to get someone to come to the front door. They don't get an answer. The brothers, who are about to head upstairs to kill the two-year-old baby, hears the knocking on the front door. And they think oh fuck the cops are here something we've we we gotta go it's time to go so they completely disregard the baby upstairs which thank the powers that be for that you know 911 has been called i don't know if it was just something in his mind that thought oh they'll just think this was a prank phone call they won't dispatch anybody out like they won't send anybody out here maybe that's what he was thinking these cops are standing outside the front door they're knocking on the door they're thinking, are we going to have to go in here without backup? Like, is this is this going to be the night when when we get ambushed, we don't go home to our families because, like, we have no idea what's going on here. We know that, that the call came from a child and we see a shit ton of blood. No one is answering the door. What is happening here? So the brothers, they they have this, like... I guess you would call it a bug out bag where they they like stashed all of their gear and shit that they were going to take with them on this rampage 
they so called it. So when they hear the knock on the door, they grab the bag and they're like, we gotta go. So they head out the back door. Well, how this house is situated, it's not necessarily on a cul-de-sac or at the end of this street, but it has a larger property line, I guess you could say, than the others around it. It's got like this triangular shaped property line instead of it being, you know, your normal rectangle. There's a shit ton of woods in the back. They're like, okay, well, let's fucking go into the woods. They'll never find us in there. (sighs) When you just go into the woods and sit there and watch it all unfold... They're probably going to find you. They just went in and just like got in a ditch. Like that was it. Yeah, they got in a ditch. Yeah. So the officers are still at the front door. They're still knocking and they actually hear a a person inside of the front door faintly say, help me from inside. Bless her heart. And so Detective Burton, he's like, okay, this here's where the decision has to be made. Do I break in this front door? and go into who knows what the fuck is waiting in there for me. Right. Just so that I can try to render aid to whoever this is. And we don't even know if this is just a setup. It could be an ambush, you know, just to kill cops. Yeah, just like, oh, please let me in. Michael's going to kill me. Or, oh, sorry, Robert. Exactly. Yeah. So they have no idea what's waiting for them in there. Are we going to kick down this door or are we going to wait for backup? And Detective Burton made the decision that, you know what, this is, this is our fucking job. This is what we're going to do. We're going in. So they kick the door in and right inside of the front door is this 13 year old girl. She's laying on the floor. She's obviously badly injured. She's covered in blood. She's covered in stab wounds. And she's actually speaking. She tells them that her two brothers attacked her. Detective Burton said that he could tell that she had some sort of internal injuries or bleeding or something or like fluid buildup in her lungs just by the way that she was talking. Yes, aspirating kind of sound. Yes. Yeah. So he he knew right then like I have to get this girl out to paramedics. Right. And so that's that's what they they did. They immediately removed her from the house and they took her outside paramedics were staged outside they took her out there and left her with the paramedics and decided you know what it's we got to go back in because there's no telling how many other victims there are in this house luckily though more officers start to arrive on the scene and this is when they decide it's time for some fucking tactics let's go and clear this house room by fucking room so they start this methodical search they're going room by room and I shit you not every room they come to seemed to have a fucking body in it they find blood everywhere literally everywhere it's on the ceiling it's on the walls it's it's in the carpet they come across April 1st who is in the living room she was actually still alive she apparently fell into one of the officer's arms and then they took her outside and she died not long after that but she was still alive at that point they go back inside then they find daniel stabbed to death they come across dad in the kitchen stabbed to death they come down this hallway they're thinking like how many are we gonna find today 
they come down to the hallway and they get to the bathroom door. The bathroom door has been closed and locked. The officers decide that they need to kick this door in. And what they're expecting, honestly... Is the suspects. Yes. And this is from the officers. Yeah. They are expecting to find those suspects behind that door. Because that's, I mean, for the most part, how that goes. If you find a locked door in the house. You know what I mean? Mm Mm-hmm. So they kick this door in. And instead, they find these two young children stabbed to death. One of the detectives who had actually helped open that door up said that, like, he just had to take a minute. Like, yes, we know that this house has not been cleared yet. We get it. But this was so jarring to him. Like, and I don't blame him at all. I could not imagine walking up on this scene. That attitude, that, I don't know, I should take a life, the whole wiping out a family, two little kids that were obviously locked up in a bathroom together. I would be so furious. At this point, they had actually called for a canine unit backup to start making its way down so they could find these dudes. Those dogs are incredible. Absolutely. They find the kids. Then they're like, all right, we have to continue our search. We have to find someone who is alive. And so they go up the stairs to the second floor and they come to a room with a crib inside of it. They are already expecting the absolute worst because they literally just witnessed a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, a 12-year-old, mom and dad. Like they are not expecting to see anything good in this crib. But lo and behold, there's a two-year-old girl sleeping quietly in her crib, absolutely unharmed. Thank God. It was apparently around the two-year-old's birthday because they're, they when they were processing the scene later, they found a birthday cake for her in the fridge. I think she was like five days away from turning two. So they remove the this poor sleeping baby from the house. Oh. They've cleared all the rest of the rooms in the house. And they while they're downstairs, they see that the back door is ajar. So they go ahead and call in the canine unit. They release the canine unit down this path into the woods behind the house. He fucking takes off. They come across discarded pieces of body armor that's just absolutely soaked in blood. The officers were like really iffy on, they they let the canine go, but they're like, we don't know if they're planning on ambushing us. We don't know if there are traps set. We don't know shit. So they had to be like on super high alert. You just don't know what you're getting into. Like, is there a bomb? You don't know. Mm -hmm. They knew that that the suspects were probably still in the area just because of how fresh the crime scene was. So very cautiously, they continued on. It took the canine 10 minutes to locate these suspects. And in all honesty, that if I was that handler and not knowing what was going on in the woods, that's also that that's so much trust and that's so much I couldn't do that. I could not work with a dog. If it if it came down to I was putting my dog in danger or myself, I'd be like, You sit, I'll be right back. <laughs> I know. 
I'm the same way. So the the dog pinpoints the brothers. They're in this ditch obscured by these trees and whatnot. They actually had a helicopter at this point with lights like looking down at them. And the officers see them. They hold them at gunpoint. They tell them, put your hands up right now. Robert immediately listens. But Michael is, they feel like he's not really complying, that he's still fidgeting around and it's making them nervous. So guess what they did? Release the canine! This dog got him good, got him on the shoulder, basically held him there until officers could get over there and handcuff him. They had to take him to the hospital. They did. They did have to take him. <laughs> so at that point, they decided that it was a good idea to go ahead and take some pictures and document how like the state of things when they were arrested. Oh my God. Right there, before they put them in the cruiser to take them to jail, they take a bunch of pictures. I think I have like 50 pictures. I mean, the boys, the boys look gory. I will tell you that. And the knowledge in your brain that that blood is not theirs is something else. Yes, there's quite a few pictures. And with that, we will see you in part two. These kids are standing in front of the police cars when they were taking these pictures. Robert is wearing his body armor under a black shirt. You can see the body armor sticking out from underneath the shirt. He is absolutely filthy. Both of them are, actually, because... I mean, murdering people is hard and it makes you sweaty and then you roll around in the dirt and it sticks to you. Plus, you have people's blood all over you. He is absolutely in disarray. Both of them really are. Michael, on the other hand, that's the discarded body armor that the dog came across first. He had actually taken it off and discarded it as he ran. Robert actually had the knife still on him. They don't know what happened to Michael's knife. And also, I never saw pictures of the knives. So I don't know if that was actually the murder weapon that he still had on him or what i know that they had several knives they probably found a murder weapon but i don't know if it was that one or not okay so here's the thing the brothers did not seem upset at all actually michael had absolutely no emotion and officers said when they were talking to Robert and like instructing him on taking these pictures and you know pounding him down all of this stuff officers said that he actually seemed quite cocky he said it's not like it is on tv it's not just one cut and they die when they're done they're gonna put the two brothers in different patrol cars right and take them separately as the officers are walking each of their suspects to said patrol cars. Robert looks over to his brother. He looks over to Michael and he says, quote, it's been a pleasure and I'm proud of what I've done, end quote. So they take the brothers into custody and they start the interview process with Robert. Michael is taken to the hospital because, you know, dog bites. Doggy, doggy. <laughs> then they take him back to the station, interview him as well. They're all like around 30 minutes long. And it's an interview with Michael 
right after the killings happened. He just got back from the hospital. Robert's tape, however, they they did also tape Robert's interview, but it was sealed by a court order. I want to take just a second. I forgot to mention something earlier. When these police officers were going through and clearing this house and finding these bodies, one of the first things they did was they called to dispatch and they went ahead and started a chaplain. Chaplain, yes, thank you. That was really my time to shine. When when they're going through this house, they and they're seeing these bodies and these kids, literally the first thing they thought in their mind was, we've got to call the chaplain. And they wanted to make sure that whoever, if there was someone alive in this house, they had a chaplain to speak to as soon as possible. They actually got three en route which is absolutely incredible. And this is coming from me, a non-religious person. I just think that's very, very cool. And not only that, but it was only two hours after they sent the brothers off to jail and to do their interviews that they got a warrant to search the house. So yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. This case was handled so well. A CAD transcript is basically just a transcript of what transpired with the dispatcher. Like from the time that the dispatcher started dispatching this call, not the call itself, but what the dispatcher and the police and everyone on these lines actually said to each other. So what I need to tell you is that you have different channels like there will be city police there will be deputies there will be highway patrol there's fire and there's ambulatory services like it's right there are a whole lot of units a whole lot of different people detectives need to come the bodies are going to go to medical examiners there is a coroner there is a you know what i mean and it's not all the same channel it's all different channels and there, there is a, there's a lot going on and this dispatcher, like multiple people need to be involved in who needs to come. And in this transcript, Raven's husband is actually going to help us and go through that and read it. And Raven's going to, you know, give you a timeline of the things that happen, but we'll just say he's an active paramedic in this county. <laughs> I'm proud of us as a friend family and all the things that we have done and all the things that we aspire to do and all the things we're doing right now. You know what I mean? But if someone is starting here and going backwards because iTunes and everybody doesn't know how to list a damn podcast from the first one down for some reason. So her husband's a paramedic and it's in the same system. And so he knows the codes and what they call their units and things like that. We do go by codes. You go 10-7, whatever, and he's going to describe the 10 codes and stuff to you. During that transcript, the part that I want you guys to pay attention to, because it killed me, was the bodies that they were finding and how many more units they were having to send. So it's like, you find a body, you need a unit. You can't just pile up everybody in one thing, you know what I mean? Yeah, and, and with paramedics, it, it is one body per ambulance. So, and you have two... You have a team per ambulance. So just imagine. Yes. And so unit, I need a unit. I need a unit. And there's yeah. no, there's no saving them. And so then all this is going to influx to the forensic laboratory. So to the lab we go. I want you all to think about, we have two suspects. Say Raven and I are the suspects, right? Raven and I have killed five people. We have two survivors. Only one can talk. They point us out. It's obvious we did it. 
We both have knives. We both have blood all over us. I might have only stabbed one person one time, and Raven might have killed everyone else. Hey, why do I have to kill everybody else? <laughs> Raven might have stabbed one person one time, and I might have killed everyone else. Here's the part where it's how do you know? The baby was supposed to die. And it's kind of like they divvied up the jobs. The boys were like, I'm going to do this one. You do that one. I'll do this one. You do that one. Their quiet plan did not go according to plan. And so it was mayhem. The mom's fighting back. The dad's fighting back. The sister's fighting back. You know, the dad's barely fighting back. But this is not the quiet, noiseless thing that it was supposed to be. And so whenever you have strikes and you have cast-offs, when you're bludgeoning, stabbing, things like that. So you stab it gets in the blood, you pull back again, and you have a cast off. So blood flings on you, on the ceiling, on the wall, on the person behind you, which as we all know, a lot of, a couple times these boys were together and behind or beside each other. So just because you're stabbing this person and their bloody cast off is getting on me, doesn't mean I'm stabbing them. On the forensic side of things, you get all of this into a lab. You get their clothes, you get their knives, you get carpet samples, you get wall samples, you get the victim's bodies themselves. You get to figure out whose DNA is on what. Now all seven of these kids share DNA. So all you can differentiate most of the time, like the mom is for sure and the dad is for sure. And then they had all these kids. You're having to sit there and go, were one off on these values, you know what I mean? Say one kid was diabetic. You have to go way, way deeper when it comes to figuring out who did what. And Michael had said two of his victims actually survived, his targeted victims, who he was supposed to take out. They survived. So technically, he killed one person. He claimed later that he, that he killed Christopher too, but he retracted that. So, I mean, I don't know. He also reneged on, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, I might have also stabbed my mom. I'll just say I work in a diagnostic lab. But I just want you to know that I know, just trust me, I know what I'm talking about. I play <laughs> with blood all day. I want to talk to you for a minute about everything that you've said. So we're going to go back to they've been isolated. They have been homeschooled. They're only around each other. The neighbor kids don't know who they are. One of the boys actually said, I believe it was Michael, said that they only left their house maybe once a month and that was to get groceries. Yeah. So they are all in there together all the time. Their only outside influences are not normal people. They are Hollywood people. They're people on the internet. They do not have a grasp of normal reality outside this home. Or social skills. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. And so this leads us into what's called folie de. And Canada, all of our listeners and my new friend up there in Ontario, it's like, as soon as you hear me say a French word, Canada has left the chat. <laughs> I get it. Please feel free to message me and tell me how the hell you actually say this. Because the only... The only French words I know are actually like Creole, Cajun, yeah. and um, they're food. I do like a beignet. But oh, anyways. God, I love beignet. I said the B word. I love Creole. Anyway. I digress. We get what's called folie de. It's a delusion or mental illness shared by two people in close association. So, and it's, we call it like shared delusional disorder. It's a psychiatric syndrome in which symptoms of a delusional belief and sometimes even hallucinations are transmitted from one individual to another. 
we have shared psychotic disorder, which some of you are my friends and you do work in the medical field too. There's actually a diagnosis code for that and we have an ICD-10 code for these. So you can look up what it is, what the treatments are, you know what I mean, what the symptoms are, all that kind of stuff. So you have shared psychotic disorder, which is 297.3 and induced delusional disorder, which is F24 if you still run ICD-10 codes. So the, the term is French for madness of two and no one knows what causes, we're gonna call it SDD, okay? Okay. It's shared delusional disorder. So no one knows what causes SDD exactly, but stress and social isolation are the main contributors. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. When we are socially isolated, the few people we do talk to become very important to us and therefore they're seen as a more trustworthy person. So we're going to pretend in this situation that Robert is what we call an inducer. So when the inducer is sharing their delusions, the second person is more likely to believe them because they trust them because that's what they know. That's who they interact with. And they shared a room. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like you said, it just reiterates the point. You said they're best friends. So additional since they're socially isolated, people developing shared delusional disorder do not have others reminding them that their delusions are either impossible or not likely and are therefore more likely to develop SDD. The treatment for shared delusional disorder is for the person to be removed for the inducer and seek additional treatment. You need to get these two people apart from each other. And you were, t you and I talked about how Michael seemed really, he was childlike. He had a speech yes. impediment. Yeah. He wrote like a child. He didn't spell things very correctly. So obviously who do you think is the puppet master here? And oh, he yeah. didn't, he didn't complete his tasks. We still have two survivors. Right. He said, I didn't want to do this, but if I didn't, he was going to kill me. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. That's what he initially said. He was like, well, Robert told me that if I didn't go along with it, he was going to kill me as well. So I don't want to be murdered. When those children are locked into a room and you say, help me, help me. He's going to kill me. You could easily change what the hell's happening. Get behind that door. Also stay with the kid who's on the phone with 911. But I'm saying I really do think there was a psychological disorder from the isolation between the two of them. Yeah, I can see that for sure. Stress is a factor because it triggers mental illness. I mean, anybody who has anxiety, social anxiety, uh, depression, we, you and I have a lot of very p close personal friends who suffer from these things. Yeah. Well, and if you think about it too, I mean, if you think about how overbearing they describe their, their mom and dad and abusive and stuff, that would just force those brothers to be even closer because now it's them versus parents. And so that bond is going to get stronger. There's also an age gap in the siblings. Right. Yeah. Their next youngest one, whom they actually were a little bit close to, Jade, that we call her, she was still 13. Yeah. Like the difference between a 13 year old and 16 year old is night and day. Like you don't leave most people, some of you do, but most people don't leave their 13 year old home alone, but the 16 year old can take care of himself. A lot of development happens in those three years. And so of course, between 16 and 18 year old boys, there's not a whole lot of difference there, you know? Oh yeah. So, and then the other ones were just little. So I'm sure they were basically like bonus parents or babysitters to those kids. They didn't have the opportunity to be friends with them. Right. 
I mean, everything about the situation just led them to be closer and closer. Yeah. The the majority of people that develop SDD are genetically predisposed to mental illness. But the predisposition itself is not enough to develop a mental disorder. Like we were saying earlier, murderers are made kind of thing. Oh, yeah. So what happens in your body, your adrenal gland releases the stress hormone cortisol into the body. So, which when it's released, it increases levels of dopamine in your brain and changes in dopamine levels are linked to mental illness. That's why it puts you at a heightened risk of developing a psychological disorder. There are tons of cases of this, like Mickey and Mallory, natural born killers, Bonnie and Clyde. There are tons of brothers who have killed. There are tons of even the James boys, Jesse and Frank James. You know what I mean? There's a, there's a ton of two people feeding off each other. I'm glad that you mentioned that because this is a perfect time for me to mention that this case was actually featured on a Oxygen Channel new original called Killer Siblings. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And I bet a lot of them, you will see a pattern just like what we talked about with the brain injuries and the frontal and temporal lobe. Yeah. You will see a pattern of the way these kids grew up and how they got to that point. At the time of Michael's trial, Robert had been diagnosed with several mental health issues, including major depression with psychotic tendencies. True. Yes. He told jurors he had never seen a mental health professional or even a family physician before his arrest. Yes. 100% true. Yeah. Yes. And he, he started just saying that he was lonely. He had a violent childhood, like him and Michael both. He said Michael had a speech impediment and likely had dyslexia. And his parents also talked about the rapture and the biblical apocalypse as a retribution thing for everything they hated about the world. Warned the children to stay away from the windows in the house to avoid being seen. What? Um, They told us the world was full of people who wanted to harm us, but inside the home, his father would punch and kick the boys and remind them, I can kill you anytime I want to. What the f- His testimony when they brought him in for his brother's trial. God, I did not realize it was that bad in the house. That's another thing. Like, can we please warn you? <laughs> Socializing is a little important. Yeah. I love my hermit friends, but I used to live with a hermit friend. He's still one of my best friends. I am a hermit friend. Yeah, we would literally go and drag him out of his room. Like, get out here. There are people at the house. We're on the porch socializing. I'm guilty of that shit, though. Like, I know, but you're so different because you, your mind isn't closed off when you're a hermit. That's true. You tend to look at things. You tend to learn things. You tend to research things. Your yeah. hermit time is your alone time where you can replenish yourself. Yeah, for sure. It's your recharge time. I would really like to message these people and be like, look up this ICD code and study these two brothers. I mean, it's not like you can undo a murder, but you can obviously see in a social setting how it would be detrimental to learn. Yeah. They're not looking at two of them as a whole. They're looking at them individually. When they went and got their warrant and they went in and did their search or whatever, they found a flash drive in the home. They found cameras. They found surveillance equipment. And then when they asked them about it later, they were like, oh yeah, well, we were kind of planning on making videos out of it. And in one video, they were going to 
like actually show the bodies because you know their initial plan was to cut up the bodies and put them in the attic and they were actually going to show the bodies right after the murders and that's what they were going to show investigators and prosecutors and then they were going to make another video that didn't have the bodies in them but they were just like covered in blood and they were going to post that online we've got a written statement here from michael bever this is after his interview the detective asks him to write out his statement. We have that. I have asked one of my lovely friends to read that for you. He came in and he did a, what would you call it, a dramatization of it that we're going to play. Oh, by the way, he he does like a full-blown impersonation. This guy doesn't have a speech impediment. He's just doing like they do on TV. Yes, correct. Absolutely. Let's listen the first day of planning was on June 30th, 2015, when Robert found out that he could buy weapons, and he told me his plan to kill everyone in our house and then go on a killing spree through the U.S. I thought it was a great idea, and I agreed to join him. The plan was to first at around 12 a.m. to put on our gear, and Robert would kill April Bever. Then I would kill Jade and Victoria, then go upstairs, and both kill David Bever, and the baby, and then go downstairs, and Robert would kill Daniel and Percy then wait a couple days and leave the state and begin the spree. What actually happened that night around 12 a.m., we invited Jade into our room and I distracted her with my laptop. Robert went up behind her and cut her throat. She started screaming and fell to the ground. Well, Robert kept stabbing her in the throat. Then a couple seconds later, April came in and started yelling, call the police, and Robert, what are you doing? Then he went over and stabbed April in the neck. Then Jade ran out of the room yelling and went outside and landed in the driveway. Robert followed and dragged her back to the bench in the front lawn. Robert then went inside and started attacking Mom, and then the little kids in the back room, and then he asked me to go get Jade. I then went out the front door and pulled her inside. Just before he asked me to get Jade, David came down and Robert cut and killed him. Then Daniel and Percy locked themselves in the bathroom, and I begged them to let me in, and they did. I went into the bathroom where Percy was, and I stabbed him in the neck. Then I went into the living room where Robert was chasing down David and killed him. As Jade screamed, we heard a knock at the front door, so we went to the back door and went into the woods where we were arrested. I would like to point out the fact right here, though, that you heard the name in that recording. You heard him say the name Percy. That is 100% in the statement. The name Percy, instead of Christopher, is used in the statement. I do not know right. why. And it's multiple times he brings up Percy, actually. Yes, it is spelled... P-E-R-S-Y. The only child that was not mentioned by name was Christopher. So I'm just assuming that he's talking about Christopher. Maybe Christopher's middle name is Percy. I don't know. And then there was even one part in there that he wrote where he even spelled that wrong. He spelled it like Perry. P-E-R-R-Y. So I have no idea what's going on with that. I want to reiterate the fact that Jade did survive this. She somehow survived all of those stab wounds, the strangulation, the attempted asphyxiation. Her throat being cut open. Yes. She did not want to die that day. And the two-year-old survived as well. With that, let's get into the legal proceedings of this. The brothers were both charged with five counts of first-degree murder and one count of assault and battery with intent to kill, which was the charge that they added on for Jade. Authorities announced initially 
that Michael Bever would be charged as an adult, and then he was charged as, as an adult. The age to charge for an adult in Oklahoma is 16. So sometimes when you're when you're right at 16, it really depends on the situation of the case. Sometimes you can get it knocked down and be tried as a juvenile. Other times, usually with capital murder charges, they go ahead and charge you as an adult. But Bever's attorney also argued against the constitutionality of the decision to try Bever as an adult in general, stating that he would probably die in prison, and it's basically the same thing as a death penalty. He also tried to argue that Michael should be rehabilitated instead of imprisoned if he was physically and emotionally abused at home. So, but the thing about it was is that they never actually found any real evidence like actual palpable evidence that they were abused at home it was basically just their statements of saying that they were abused at home yeah yeah and the sister too i mean she really had no reason to lie about it the boys did once again no proof right no real proof to at least not to use that in the defense of michael and robert bever so the brothers were arraigned in court on August 3rd. They pled not guilty to the charges filed against them, obviously, like you do. A preliminary hearing was set for October 28th. And this freaking preliminary hearing, they pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. I want to say they pushed it back like four or five times. I think it was four times. Until they finally settled on February 23rd, 2016. Prosecutors didn't want to put Jade through the trials because the brothers weren't going to have a trial together. They, they were having separate trials and they didn't really want to put Jade through having to testify at either of these trials, let alone both of them. So they talked to Jade if they could get Robert and Michael to agree to a deal, then they wouldn't put Jade on the stand. And the deal would be that she doesn't go on the stand and they would remove the possibility of the death penalty. And so Robert is offered five life sentences without parole in order to avoid the death sentence. He takes it. Jade also is avoiding getting on the stand and testifying. And so they're kind of thinking, okay, well, Robert took this deal. Let's throw it over to Michael and see if he'll take the same deal. But he straight up refuses. Therefore, Jade would have to testify in Michael's hearing. Initially, the defense wants to seek an insanity defense for Michael. Well. Yeah. And the courts were basically like, okay, well, if you want an insanity defense, then you're going to have to send Michael to get a mental health evaluation. Like, he flew through that mental health evaluation and was deemed fit to stand trial. Therefore, the defense really didn't have enough evidence to prove an insanity plea. And the defense is doing all of this kinds of shit, like just trying to shake shit up. They tried to get his confession thrown out. They tried to get him tried as a juvenile instead of an adult. Like, all of this obviously was denied. If they had tried him as a juvenile, his statements wouldn't have been released. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All of that would have been sealed. Okay. Every bit of it. Okay. All of the things that we are using now to compile this wonderful list of evidence would have been unobtainable. This was almost a full year after Robert's guilty plea. April 16th, 2018 is when Michael's trial started. 
The trial lasted six weeks. They listened to testimony from just about anyone and everyone who was involved in this case. But here's the most bizarre thing that people witnessed in the courtroom. They actually put Robert on the stand to testify at Michael's trial. They put him on the stand, and here's the thing, with all the things that you said earlier that he said in his testimony. So apparently while he's saying all of those things, he's like grinning awkwardly, and he's smiling at weird things, and he's like giggling, and it's just, number one, super inappropriate and super awkward. And the thing about it, too, is that he had a completely different statement than in his confession. Because in his initial confession, he had told investigators that he and Michael basically divvied up the family, you know, and they both had a hand in killing. But then when he was put on the stand at the trial, he ended up saying that Michael didn't do anything, that he was the one that killed everyone. Yeah, it's really hard to differentiate whether is he trying to take all the glory or is he trying to spare his brother? Right. You just don't know if this is, yeah, him trying to help him or him being self-serving. And then, of course, they put Jade on the stand. She had to tell her story in front of her brother who did this to her. And she didn't, she wasn't just like an open book up there. Like, she was very shy. She didn't really speak freely. She was very nervous. And she, she basically only answered the questions that they asked her. They would ask her a question. She would answer. They would move on. She wasn't just like talking up a storm up there. Right. You and I have also talked about how we compartmentalize things in our brains sometimes. Yeah. It's like I really have to have somebody relive a moment for me. Like tell me about it. And then I'll be like, oh yeah, I remember it. But certain yeah. things that are traumatic, my brain, I have no control over it. My brain's like, no. You did not see this. This never happened. You, I just forget things on right. purpose, apparently. But just the fact that, because she had her throat cut too. And she's got a scar there. Right. And she's got scars in her hands, defensive wounds from having her hands up. Yeah. And he just barely poked through to her chest. So you see that. You hold your children. You look at your hands and there's scars. You yeah. look in the mirror and there's a cut on your throat. You know, it's like, how the can you ever just forget that? August 9th, 2018. The jury deliberates for two hours. They come back to deliver the news with tear-filled eyes. They had basically been crying the entire trial. How could you not? Yeah, I mean, I probably would have been too. And it's still heavy to think about. Yeah. Well, and not only that, but you have to imagine that you're you're a, a juror in the actual trial. You're going to see pictures of things that no one else has access to. You're going to see those pictures of the inside of the house. You're going to see the pictures of the body. You're going to see autopsy photos of a fucking five-year-old girl and a seven-year-old boy and a 12-year-old boy. And like these things are going to fuck you up. I can't see making it through this trial without crying once or twice. I wonder if they offer counsel to jurors when they're done. You know what? That's a great question. I think I might ask a lawyer that I know. Okay. I think they just release you and send you on your way, honestly. I think you're right because, I mean, which is kind of dumb because if you can do jury duty, you have to do jury duty. So you would think- And you're just a normal person. Yeah. Not everyone is like us. So the jury went back. They're deliberating. 
they came back out. Apparently the entire two hours that they were back there, they were just a bawling mess when they were trying to figure out what they were going to do with this. Lori Fulbright from Tulsa's News on 6, she said, I have never seen a jury cry this hard when they came back from their deliberations. They were a train wreck. You're putting a 16-year-old behind bars for the rest of his life. Mm -hmm. That's hard. Hard, yeah. They sentenced him to five consecutive life sentences with the possibility of parole. However, it's five consecutive life sentences, which means that he has to serve all of those life sentences, which is... Is life 48 years? No, it's 45 years. I'm sorry. It's 45 years. Life is 45 years. Okay, so that's 225. Yes. And he has to serve all of those before he even has a snippet of the possibility of parole. So he's going to be in there for the rest of his life. And then Robert got the same thing he got, except he didn't get the possibility of parole. And Robert is in Joseph Hart Correctional Center. Michael is in the Lexington Correctional Center. They were not allowed to be housed in the same prison because they were co-conspirators to this crime. On August 5th, when the trial was finally over and he was sentenced, Tulsa County Judge... Bill Mooseman ruled that the documents concerning the case could be made public because he was tried as an adult and they were released the next day. So literally everything that we have for you that we're going to put in our little exclusive group is going to be basically all of those things that the judge ordered would be released to the public. Here's the thing too. Another thing I forgot to mention about the Bevers house The house itself, I think that a lot of the neighbors thought the same thing, like the same thing that you think about the Amity house. Mm -hmm. It's just a bad place. Something bad happened in there. And, well, it burned up. And authorities suspected that it was arson. And so, actually, the Broken Arrow City Council announced a plan to raise money through the Tulsa Community Foundation for the acquisition of the house because they wanted to just buy it. They were like, well, nobody wants it. It's not going to sell. It's set on the market for like a year. And this was, we're talking like a half a million dollar house and it's on the market for like 175000 Nobody wants to touch it still. And so Broken Arrows City Council want to buy it. They eventually do raise enough money to buy it. They bulldoze it. They put a memorial park up, which it's called Reflection Park now. That was done March 27th of 2019. So just this last year, it was finally officially done. I mean, it's a public park now. It's just a little park in a residential area. It sits on, obviously, the land that the house was on. But, you know, I want to leave them with Michael's jailhouse journal. And it's not a journal like you would think it's a journal. But when you go through there, it's basically just pictures, literally drawn with crayons. There are some that have words on them, and they're like four or five pages consecutively, and it like tells this little story. And this is Michael's journal, not Robert's, but Michael's journal. It says, once upon a time, dot, dot, dot. And there are like little pictures under it, and you turn. There were two brothers named Michael and Robert 
dot, 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 and you turn. They hated their family, dot, 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 and you turn. So they killed them, the end. It's like some shit out of a horror movie. Seriously. Like, and there are pictures in there of, he has drawn stick figures of him and Robert killing his family. Like, okay, hang on, because here's the Gemini in me coming out. What if this is a form of therapy for him? Not bragging about it, not excited about it, but it's imagery that he needs to get out of his head. And also accepting that this happened. Like, you you did do this. This did happen. That was not a dream. You did a terrible thing. Your family is gone. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, what if it's possible? I can definitely see that. But then how do you explain the swastika that says white power? It could be in the movie, though. We haven't seen Rampage. That's true. We have not. We're going to have to do our homework and watch this Rampage gross i know i I really kind of don't want to but i also want to at the same time because i think a lot of things would probably make more sense if we did see it i know all right all right but then you also have things in the journal like for instance that says james holmes my hero that's a murderer jim jones my hero that's a murderer Depictions of forest fires and mushroom clouds, guillotines being used, something that says Hail Satan. There's just all kinds of shit. And this is another like 28 pages of pictures. They're not okay. You've reached the end of our episode. All suspects are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Join Raven next time on the Sirens Podcast. Do we have an outro? That's our outro, isn't it?